This is the Rory Gansfield Podcast, and here is my eight-armed co-host, Jon. Eight arms, that means eight hands, that means loads of fun. Um, hi Dave, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing very well. That uh, didn't take long This episode again. is brought to you by the letter G. <laughs> Should we restart this recording or uh, just take no, our risks with well, iTunes? I think our audience <laughs> should be used to this by now. Uh, yeah. This is this is uh, a news episode, and the the news this episode pretty much pretty much brought to us by almost just a single source, and that's the uh, the the various references you've had so far. Uh, <laughs> it's the the state of the Octoverse, uh, which is something that uh, GitHub does every year. And uh, I think we can all agree that for one reason or another, 2020 has been uh, has been a year of note. And uh, as Jan is just demonstrating, they have a very, very pretty site. Uh, it's just uh, octaverse.github.com is the latest one. I think you can actually go and see previous iterations as well. But yeah, it's just a, a state of... I guess open source, uh, primarily open source development, from the view of uh, of GitHub and and how they see uh, everything playing out from from their platform outwards. But uh, I mean, you you sort of you've read this as well, Jon. What were your initial thoughts as you were going through this? Well, my first thought was I didn't know GitHub did this. This is the first time I see this, so uh, I'm totally surprised. This is a yearly thing. Mm. I guess I'm not that much of a news reader. It must be on me. But I do like the fact that they do it because uh, say what you want, GitHub, it's pretty much at the core of open source these days. If you're doing anything with open source, there's a good chance you're on GitHub. There are a couple of competing uh, similar things out there as well. I forget the name. It's also Git something. Uh, whatever. Again, GitHub, they're very central, they're very present. So whatever they've been able to decide upon or, or think they can deduce should already be interesting. And looking through the little um, graphs up there, I'm not going to spoil it yet, but there's a small scroll bar here, so it's a very big page. There were some interesting things there, and I must say not many surprises, to be honest. Yeah, 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 I, I agree. Like, no, nothing surprised me. I think some of the... Some of the scale was surprising. I think let's let's kind of let's scroll down in in the the journey and like look at the the first kind of block of uh, of values there. I mean, fifty six million uh, developers on GitHub and and like sixty million new repositories. Like literally more repositories created than there are developers on GitHub. Which like yeah makes sense. Like you. You'd have lots of people would create more than one. Some, you know, some would just be a lot of people would just be contributing. But that's still like that's a hell of a lot of of time, effort, and uh, people power, like shuffling through uh, GitHub's servers out there in the in the glorious cloud. It's the power of crowdsourcing, isn't it? If you make it available yeah. to the masses, the masses will find it and use it. And again, it's very useful, especially in open source. If you're not doing anything across different teams and different continents, then open source was kind of the only place you really needed that. 
today when more companies, especially with COVID, uh, are getting more distributed, working from home, this got even more important. And yep. well, new repositories created in the last year, I think I myself created like six and I haven't written a single line of code this year, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of people are using these repositories also as a kind of, uh, how should I say this, backend for their uh, configuration management systems like Ansible and things like yeah. that, just to store their config files in the revision control system. It's basically has nothing to do with development, not even open source, so even though the config files may be used by an open source project, something like that. But these repositories have really become a tool that's been used for multiple different things on top of just open source development. And I was yeah. kind of surprised by that when I first saw people do this. Because for that reason, I had my own little subversion server here local. And then I kind of thought, uh, hmm, kind of makes sense. Love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, uh, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, like the, the only other things, I mean, there's only, there's only four numbers here, so there's, <laughs> there's not too much to focus on. But 72% of Fortune 50 companies using GitHub Enterprise, I part of me is wondering, like, what are those other organizations? I suppose like there are organizations that where you know, software is a significantly smaller part of their their you know, their ecosystem, maybe, or there are organizations that just you know don't don't want to put source control out there on anything on the internet. They're, that I can also see being being a thing. I can see it being a thing. I can't see it being a good thing. I mean, any Fortune 50 company should have a very big IT department. They do the monitoring, they do their scripting, their DevOpsing. They need somewhere to put that stuff. And the reflex of, I'm not going to put it on the internet because it's not safe, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you're still thinking like that, you shouldn't be in the Fortune 50 anymore, I think. You're really running mm. behind at that point. So yeah, I think yeah. it's, I agree, it's a very low number. I would have expected this in the low 90s at least. Mm. So uh, very interesting to find. And that's actually, uh, the. this is the front page and they have full uh, reports behind it, which are yeah. a lot of text, which I didn't read as thoroughly as I wanted to, to be honest. But I didn't really find any justification for the numbers. They just have justified mm. them. They tell you where they got the numbers from, how the, who they asked it to, and how the responses were. So they give a lot more statistical data information to back up the numbers you see on the page here. But they didn't try to hypothesize, yeah. form a hypothesis, that's English, on the why this actually uh, is what it is for this particular one that, uh, I'm talking now. But yeah, fiddling with my camera. One point. Um, yeah, I, I'm just keep on talking while you're playing with your little toy there. So have fun with it. <laughs> I will. So the next the next one is um, about the kind of geographical distribution of um, their customers uh, of customers slash active users, and like again, nothing particularly surprising here. Like roughly equally split. I mean, not, not entirely, but roughly re-split between Europe, Asia, and, and North America. Um, I, I, if anything, I was almost surprised. The only the only sort of slightly surprising thing here was that Europe was, you know, um, what four percent smaller than than Asia, twenty six percent versus thirty um, percent. That's maths, everybody. Um, but beyond that, like. 
open source is everywhere. It's absolutely prevalent. And uh, this is just a, a good a good nod towards that. Yeah, I, was, I did have two surprises in this one, to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, I was kind of surprised that Europe was this big because um, the whole open source thing, it's a US-centric thing. A lot of this stuff happened in the US and Europe has been on the bandwagon more recently. So I would have expected Europe to be more on a catch-up phase still. But yeah, as you see, it's like three-thirds nicely uh, generated. But then I thought, this is the location of the developer. And there's a lot mm. of developers working for a US company living in Poland, Netherlands, UK, whatever. And that, of yeah, course, skews it a bit. And then that made me realize, yeah, okay, and looking at it like that, a lot of these big, well, not even big, but a lot of the newer companies that taking the talent where the talent is, they don't want to move everybody into Silicon Valley anymore because that's just too expensive. It's hard to make it work. So that's okay. Yeah, I can see this now. The second surprise I had was the increased percentages. So if you look here, a decrease of 2% in North America, which, remark, mm -hmm. it's going down, which is kind of weird. But more remarkably, only a 2% change. Asia, 1.1. Europe, 0.1. South America, 0.4. So it looks like this is really, I'm not going to say stagnating, but there is little change happening anymore, apparently. There's, I, there's I no would say it's, it's, not, it's not so much that the numbers are decreasing as much as it is the number of people using um, GitHub are increasing. And so the numbers, are, the proportions are shifting. Yeah, that's that what I mean, the proportions. So yeah. that, that, yeah, that yeah, catch-up yeah. thing, there's yeah. no there's no shift happening anymore. The people, it's kind of leveled out. This is apparently how the world is set up at the moment um with even the emerging countries like africa and oceania oceania how do you say this in english oceania oceania that's not the word uh, even which i would consider to be behind europe even and i'm not entirely sure if i'm right on that i would expect that there would at least be more of a shift but uh, oceania actually has no change africa 0.3 so either the early adopters are there and there's still that early adopter phase there or it's already what it's going to be there and it doesn't change anymore. But considering only a 2 and 1.7%, I would assume they're still in the early adopter phase. And then maybe in the next couple of years, those should get uh, a higher proportion of the of the circle of the of the donut. Yeah. And I, I probably need to um, just clarify something. Like I, I've, I've, I've mentioned open source a number of times actually through this. And th that's not strictly true. Like GitHub enterprise you know you can create completely and entirely yeah. private repos thoroughly secured with proprietary code like i probably need to just like, i expect a large chunk of this is open source but i expect a significant amount of it is actually you know closed sourced um as well and i don't i don't remember if that's actually covered here i don't think it is but um mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, moving on, moving on. Let's. Uh, oh yeah, this one. I the like. next one. Yeah, the next one. I, again, like no real surprises. You know, JavaScript still, you know, top language in terms of or JavaScript related. I guess um, JavaScript family maybe is a better way to put it. Uh, no, actually, was TypeScript um, is uh, separate in the fourth place. True. True. Um, 
But JavaScript but, does contain all the frameworks, the Angulars and things like that, yeah, of course. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That, that's kind of what I mean. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, no, no, uh, in my mind, at least no real surprises. I mean, really, the only thing that continues to rise and rise is, is TypeScript. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, Java is becoming uh, a tiny <laughs> bit less relevant and Python is climbing up above it, which I love. Um, but yeah, just sort of Objective C looks like it just died in 2016. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's yeah interesting, interesting stuff. But nothing that that really like rocked my world. How about you? Um, the, well, notable, of course, TypeScript's really going very strong, mm. which is understandable because basically TypeScript is a macro language on top of JavaScript. So. On the one hand, sometimes you split them off, sometimes you put them together, even in this report. So in this case, it's kind of nice you put that together because I do like TypeScript a lot, especially if you're doing things with Angular and stuff like that. It's uh, mm. really a time saver to, to be able to write TypeScript. So that makes total sense. But I would have kind of expect that the JavaScript would go down in the same proportion as TypeScript goes up, which apparently mm. is the case. Types, uh, Java, um, JavaScript stays uh, stable. While TypeScript is going up, so that's kind of remarkable. Well, m- maybe, but it, it it just means it's number one. Remember, it's not like it, it's rankings. It's yeah, not rank. like actual. So, like JavaScript could be coming down. It's just not coming down close enough to like go below Python. Like it could only be could have gone from yeah, 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 drastically yeah, yeah, above yeah, yeah. to just only a fraction above. But true, yeah, true, true. interesting. Yeah, and Python's no, still rising up. That's also a good one, of course. Uh, C-sharp having a little bump up again, which is remarkable because C-sharp has been... Mm. I like C-sharp. I've done a lot of C-sharp in the past, but it's been... It's a heavy language, and it's, again, JavaScript and Python are winning much more. But it kind of got a tick up again. So, uh, But that was last year in 2019, but it retained it this year, so that's good. Mm. I do hate the fact that Ruby's so low. I mean, why? I like Ruby. Ruby's a good language. Yeah. It, <laughs> but it's it on no the shell. Come on. The... <laughs> It no longer has the uh, the shine it once had, but nope. let's, in the interest of time, let's let's keep things moving and Maybe let's go to the one the the next graph that I think almost everybody has seen, like that's in this space at one point or another, um, and like a lot of people in this world have been experiencing, and that is the like the impact that COVID and lockdown has had on um, sort of working from home slash therefore the percentage increase in open source project creation. And this is specifically um, open source projects um, compared to the previous year. And like uh, you, you could not see a more dramatic um, sort of increase from uh, and obviously you know, things were things were starting at um, earlier on in the year. You know, people were already starting to make decisions about what was what was going on. But obviously, that uh, period in March is where things really did get locked down in a variety of places globally, and it you know the trend has only only really continued. You've seen the the trends, you know slow down a little bit over um over the uh, sort of the summer period but still you know peaking at what 40 nearly 50 percent ahead of the previous year and even even now it's up at the sort of 30 percent or so mark so yeah it 
I find this perfectly logical, but at the same time, actually quite fascinating. Yeah, the one question I have is why does it start at minus 20%? I don't see. I don't, I don't understand what this zero point is, but it doesn't matter. But I did oh, read it's, in the. It's, uh, sorry. It's. I think it's the. Um, so it's the previous year. So like, oh, the, okay, there's, like there's peaks and troughs over the year. So, so that gives you a zero so, point. Yeah, cool yep. But like it at the start of the twelve month period, and it's not. That's where they put a zero calendar point, month. Yeah. So that's why. But in the report, it actually noted that a lot of the committing is happening in downtime. So when people are not actually working, but in their uh, off hours. And I, I think mm. this is the main, uh, the main demonstrate. What this is mainly demonstrating is how bad commuting is, how big of a time sink commuting is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's we always hear that when you have that much traffic, then it costs the economy X amount of million of dollars, whatever. This actually demonstrates this to me. If you could take away uh, commuting and traffic jams and all of the wasted time getting from place to place, this is the productiveness increase you could actually re mm. that we have realized just by that simple fact of not having to spend a daily hour, two hour, even more sometimes on the road, just getting from point A to B. Yeah, indeed. As long as you don't have self-driving cars, we have to find something else. <laughs> Yes. So moving on, and this kind of aligns very closely to what Jon was talking about, like average development window uh, by day of the week per user, 2019 in that light purple and 2020 in the slightly darker purple. Unsurprisingly, you know, the, the sort of the contributions slightly higher during 2020 because of exactly you know, some of the things that Jon was talking about. But also the 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 light green line, the open source contributions, mm -hmm. like again, very unsurprisingly, with again with lockdown and and people being so restricted in what they can potentially do compared to what they maybe would have normally done, you know, the the Saturday and Sunday um, contributions to sort of open source, um, it, you know, drastically rise through the weekends because people are in a position where they suddenly find they have a you know a different amount of of quote unquote you know, spare or free time on their hands. Yeah. All right. So I don't think there's too much um, mm. on this next one. I think there. Yes. It, you know, lots of lots of. Um, countries growing very aggressively um, in contribution since last year, but nothing, at least to me, nothing really sort of um, surprising well, on that. Th this one does kind of show that the emerging countries still are the biggest growing ones. I mean, if you look at the list here, Nigeria, Hong Kong, surprisingly, Saudi Arabia, Bangladesh, Egypt, Pakistan, Indonesia, Turkey, Colombia, Peru. These are not the Silicon Valleys or yeah. uh, Brussels, London, whatever of the world. These are the countries where they're starting to get decent internet access to make this all work. Because basically without decent internet, you're not going to go on GitHub. So that does yeah. kind of contradict my f uh, earlier uh, statements about emerging countries not being growing a lot. Uh, let me say it differently. It's hard for me to correlate this graph and the first graph. It's a bit, well, uh, I, I don't know that it is really. I mean, these are just percentage increases. You know, if, if, 
if if a if a country goes from one contribution to two contributions, hundred percent, you know that, that exactly. It's hundred percent growth. <laughs> so like it, yeah, but it is growth, like, so it does make sense. It, it is, it is, it is, it is. So, and then like continuing on down again, like nothing, nothing really surprising here. Like the number of repositories created with some relation to to COVID, you know, was thoroughly unsurprising. Um, if you if you carry on down like the um, like percentage, I think this is percentage increase of like students and teachers and um, data analysts you know, is is up. And then you know if you carry on to the last one of this trio, seventy three uh, percent more active teachers, thirty two percent more active students, and the, this I think comes back to the. Um, you know, reliance more and more on remote teaching. It's not just re- remote working that's yep. fundamentally changed. Uh, my my better half is uh, she's a teacher, and you know that that has had a uh, a significant evolution through this this past uh, uh, this past year with everything that's going on. And I think this this is a a different kind of reflection of that. Yeah, it's always you, you. You use the stuff you need to use. If you don't need to use something, mm. you'll look at it. You'll intellectually understand how it works, but yeah. that's about it. Through the remote working, I'm not saying teachers are lazy at all. They're busy. That's the main thing. But now they kind of had to do this. They had to get into this and figure out, hey, this actually works. It's useful, and it's nice that it actually shows a, a big uptick. Because again, the more yeah. the teachers use it, the more they will pass it down to the students. I I think what we've seen is the necessity of innovation and like you can you can see this reflected through throughout human history you know conflict is a you know, human conflict is a is a natural accelerator of science and technology in many cases you know weapon systems advancements trickle down into i don't know better brake pads for cars and like advanced materials and all sorts of things and, but it's like there's a catalyst. There's something that forces change, and it's not. It's not that that people don't want to improve things, but it's it's very easy to become complacent and like, oh, you know, we've got something, it works. Mm-hmm. You know, we we've got lots of things that are keeping us occupied and busy. You know, do we do we need to invest more time and effort in in you know something in particular? You know, probably not, unless there's a compelling you know in. In the the wonderful world of sales, there's often this this talk about something called a compelling event, and I think you know, in regardless of of how you feel, like the COVID for many organisations has been a compelling event that has fundamentally changed the way that they operate in a variety of different ways. And I think you know, this is just a, a sort of an example of that uh, yep. in motion. Yep, totally agree. Cool. Um, yeah, so the next piece is around sort of communities. And uh, this is something that maybe you know a bit more about. But I'm, I'm actually, I, I couldn't tell you what uh, next.js is actually about. I'm afraid I'm as guilty as you there. I can do a quick search, see if I can find something uh, about it. Well, uh, you know, it, the, the, I don't know that the necessarily the individual thing matters, but we're talking here about the number of conversations and discussions that are happening in a particular 
um, you know, a particular framework within uh, GitHub. And, you know, the, if you look at the, the graph, it's just, uh, a, you know, a, a, cur a drastically increasing curve of um, discussions created. And, you know, the stat just above it, 50% of active discussion users have contributed and pushed code. And I think this is, this is something that we see um, in the in the world of, of open source um, over and over again. Like it's, people think that open source is about the code. Like it's really, it's really not. Like the code is a part of the, um, a part of the puzzle, but it's not the most important thing in my personal opinion. The most important thing is the community that you develop because that's what makes open source sustainable. And in fact, more than sustainable, makes it grow mm. and accelerate and makes it, you know, I've been working in the, the glorious world of open source for well over you know, two decades and it, it, it runs through my blood. And I, I, I love it because I think it, it's the power of communities working together to, you know, to solve problems and, and kind of develop stuff that's honestly really cool. And, you know, the, the whole idea behind the open source philosophy, again, in my personal opinion, is to have people working together for a common goal and a common cause. And, you know, the, the technology is, is definitely there and is, is important and is maybe the catalyst that gets people interested and excited, but it's the communities that really accelerate that journey. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice thing to see. Could I say that the code is the destination and the community is the path? And the path oh, is what makes could, it worthwhile. I think you could say that. I think you could. I think I just did. I think you did. And if we go down to the next one, um, yeah, this is all, this is what I was saying earlier about um, the importance of community. And to build, to build a good community, you need to be able to retain people. Like it's, it's all too easy. Um, there's a uh, random random quick story time. There's a podcast that I follow um, that that isn't the Roaring Elephant podcast, where uh -huh. the host was deciding like what hobby he wanted to get into, and he would already always been interested in um, radio control cars. Mm -hmm. Like, fine, uh, it's a thing. Um, so he went to a few radio controlled car like club slash meetup kind of things and he found engaging with people in his particular area i'm not making a generalized about all people who are into radio controlled cars but he, he found it very like very um like people would kind of shun him or not really want to talk to him or you know wouldn't include him in conversations or like he found it very difficult to try and integrate into that hobby he tried a number of times and just like couldn't couldn't make that connection and in the end, he chose a different hobby. Mm. And the reason he chose it is because like people wanted to engage with him, wanted to chat with him and like were, were inclusive and were interested in his thoughts. And like, and you know, this is a very roundabout way of, of saying like, it's incredibly important when you're building an open source community right. that you not just, uh, you know, you're not just focused on the, the handful of top contributors because if you focus on that like people's lives change people move on like things life happens 
Um, and what you need to make sure is there's a continual flow of new people coming in and you're fostering them. And like one of these new people that you you sort of, you walk through the very early stages of like, oh, well, this is, you know, from your bug report, you know, let, let me help you or from your pull request, let me help you work through this PR so we can get it in the right state to contribute to the project. You know, those people that you help there could be your top contributors in the future and the cycle will continue. But if you don't foster that contribution, it's it's never, you know, these projects are never going to be successful. Yeah, but it's and, hard because yeah. it's kind of an automated uh, reaction that when a thing gets established, you get a kind of elitism going on that these are the the senior people with all of the power and knowledge. And But yeah, that's not how any kind of volunteer-driven community can survive. Any kind of volunteer yeah. community needs to be embracing new members as much as possible because retention is really hard. And any business knows this, any HR department knows this. Hiring is hard, mm. retaining is harder. Open source, yep. volunteer. You don't pay the people, so they don't have to stay for the paycheck. <laughs> they have to stay for the people, or else you only get like one or two unicorns that do it for the pure technology technology reasons. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Right. So if we if we continue our cycle down, the the third section of this is all about. Um, Kind of unsurprisingly, it's all about security. It's surprising that's and the third thing. I would expect it higher, to be honest. Well, no, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, just kidding. <laughs> it, it makes sense. It makes sense. You know, it does. But it, it's if you if you skip down to the first graph here, um, it, you know, there's nothing particularly surprising on this. Like percentage of, of active repositories that rely on open source it's a very very high number okay slightly less in in java um but the rest of them are are very very kind of high up there in terms of the the components they they rely on and this of course is is critical for when considering security vulnerabilities because um you want to make sure that if something is compromised that it's very very quickly dealt with and that's what the rest of this kind of this section kind of runs through i've i spent a lot of my professional career i guess defending open source or evangelizing open source from a a proprietary sort of um viewpoint um early on with some organizations who have a, a view that open source is is insecure or weak and you know for those of us that have been here for for quite some time i think nothing could be could be further from the from the truth and this is to me this is what some of these numbers start to start to reflect but regardless like the the top figures here um it's sort of um sorry the the, the percentages that you were on um like seventeen percent of vulnerabilities were ex- explicitly malicious, but triggered just zero point two percent of alerts. Um, and then the other, like eighty three percent of the remaining vulnerabilities, are the result of mistakes. I think that's, that's those are two like really interesting kind of stats because, regardless of whether you're talking about open source or proprietary. Like people make mistakes, and also regardless of whether you're talking open source or proprietary, 
um, there are there will always be people that will be deliberately kind of malicious on on and, and will have a a different view in mind. But the percentage of percentages there are very very starkly different. Like eighty three percent is a pretty significant majority of cases where the vulnerabilities are just you know human error. And also think that from the seventeen percent, those aren't all open source committers that put uh, a blockchain no. miner or something in their code. This is also a big part, I think, of uh, organized crime that uh, hacked a account for somebody and added uh, a library to the project, which then was discovered and then moved again. So it's yep. because of the, public, the, the the popularity of open source and GitHub and everything around it, it has sadly also become a target of uh, the less finer examples of humanity. Indeed, indeed. So if we continue our journey downwards on the document, and you know, you'll be glad to know that we're, we're coming towards the end here, there's a, a quick like uh, a quick sort of quote or comment that repositories that automatically generated a pull request to update a fix patched software 1.4 times faster than those that did not. Um, I... You know, we we had um, Chris on the podcast not not so many episodes ago, talking to us about uh, CI/CD, and I think this is at the heart of that. Uh, if you want to improve your your time to fix, getting your uh, getting your CI/CD pipelines in order is definitely of uh, of critical importance. Uh, just devil's advocate here. It doesn't say how effective the patch was. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if you if you scroll down to the next set of four numbers here, the, see, the, I, having spent a decent chunk of time in information security and DevSecOps and that sort of thing, I, this is again like thoroughly unsurprising to me. Yet I know it; these are numbers that scare the bejesus out of a lot of people, like. The average vulnerability goes undetected before being identified for four years. Not weeks, not months, years before stuff is identified. But there is a there is a silver lining, and that silver lining is, you know, 4.4 weeks for, uh, for the community to code and release a fix after the vulnerability is identified. And and then you know ten weeks to alert the community on the availability of the security update, and one week for the users to apply the security update. And this is these are these are things that I think you know we can be reasonably proud of. Um, I think people would always want to see that improved, but I particularly I think the one week for users to apply a security update is is a really good um, number, and I. I will actually go and have a little poke around at the detailed report for this because I'm interested in mm -hmm. in how they actually kind of get this information and how, how what this aligns to. Because I know that there, are, there definitely are organisations that really struggle to to keep their code bases up to date and in line. And it's like it's the double edged sword of the acceleration and the innovation and the the huge amount of value that open source brings. But it's moving at such a pace that you you really need to be on board that that fast moving like, bullet train, um, and you know not all not all organisations are able to to make that transition very quickly. So, 
Yeah, I do think the one week is a bit utopia. I, looking at myself, I've got a server on the internet for my mail and stuff like that. And I honestly don't even run the Linux updates on a weekly basis. It usually takes me three months or something like that. Now, there's nothing vital on that thing. If it gets hacked, nobody's ever going to notice, least of all me, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but one week, that's very fast. The other thing that yeah. kind of surprises me is if it takes 4.4 weeks to make the fix, why do they then wait 10 more weeks to alert the community that the fix is in there? Uh, because what they're trying to deal with, I believe, is that they want the update to just have been like natively rolled out. Um, okay, to be included in distribution. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And and then you you need to announce that there is uh, a vulnerability, but ideally you want to almost announce it basically by the time it's already been patched, so you're you're lessening the chance of there being a window for compromise. Yeah, and I would say that if you go more and more to the CICD pipelines, then the moment a new patch hits the the servers yeah. and goes into stable, it should, yeah, I'm going to say automatically roll out in production, but that's, of course, where the CICD yeah, well, pipeline insecurity comes in, right? You need to have a good pipeline that does its checks, make sure there's regression test happening, blah, blah, blah. But uh, yeah. So I think the 10 weeks should reduce itself more over time. It should get a lot shorter, I think. Yeah. But the one week, I still think, is very optimistic <laughs> yeah i think we will have to we'll have to maybe uh we'll dig into that a little bit and make a comment on the next uh on the next episode but yeah, and that's it that's that's how the uh the state of the octoverse for 2020 wraps up um i like i think um github does a, a great job in a lot of cases with you know both their service and the data they provide about their uh, their services. I think this was a, a really nice walkthrough of the the state of 2020 from their perspective, and I I hope that uh, the uh, our commentary on it has been useful and interesting. Yeah, and also nice to see that even though they got uh, uh, even though they merged with a commercial entity, mm-hmm. the openness remains as was promised. So uh, kudos to them. Indeed, indeed. And with that, unless you have anything to add, because I think uh, the, the last screenshot we had there, open source powers the global economy, kind of says it all. Yeah. Anything else you want to add? I think I'm. No, I think I'm all out of octopi. <laughs> octopi. Hmm. And that's all the time we have for today, because we have to go eat some pie. You can support <laughs> the podcast. You can become a patron. Every contribution helps. I've uh, been on Twitter lately giving stuff away to patrons, so we do that too. If you're on YouTube, like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell. Do the YouTube, the YouTube stuff. I still can't say that word. But Dave likes it so much, you have to do it to make him happy. You can go to www.roaringalpha.org. There's links there to the Patreon page and all the information you would want. And you can follow me on Twitter using the at roaringelephant tag. And you can also send your feedback by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org. If there's any subject matter you want us to cover or have comments or things we can do to make this better for you, please send it our way. Until next time, though, my name is still Jon without eight arms. Oh, and I was going to be Octo Dave, but I guess you've you've broken that, that glorious idea. Uh, yes, happy to ruin your day, you know that. <laughs> we do look forward to talking to everybody again next week. Goodbye. See you later.